Hello, and welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. Today, we have a somewhat unconventional episode. We are publishing a recording of our live one-year anniversary celebration commemorating the launch of the Macrofactor Diet app. This episode was recorded live on YouTube on Friday, September 16th, 2022. In order to optimize the listening experience, we've cut some of the introductory conversation, which included some minor technical adjustments and fixing a crooked camera. With this in mind, we'll just jump straight into the main content of today's episode, which involves answering a ton of questions from listeners. Some of these questions are specific to the Macrofactor Diet app, but others are just general questions about training and nutrition. So, even if you're not a Macrofactor user and you have no plans to become one, you should still get plenty of great information from this episode. If you missed this live recording and you want to participate in future live events, there are many ways to stay informed and up to date with the Stronger by Science universe. You can join our email list, follow our social media accounts, or subscribe to our YouTube channel in order to avoid missing out on live events in the future. The links for all of these resources are listed in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Someone asked who the host is here. And that's an interesting question because I think people know that with Fireside Chats, obviously, Greg, you are the host. Um, and those are historically our worst reviewed episodes, usually get the lowest views, a lot of one star and two star reviews. Well, um, I mean, like we talked about before, a lot of prestige media doesn't necessarily have the highest viewership. But, uh, you know, if that's if that's the only if that's the only metric you're looking at, I, I think you're leaving a lot on the table. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. But. You know, the the regular episodes are usually within my jurisdiction. This is, you know, kind of outside of the traditional context of either um, a fireside chat or a traditional podcast episode. Had we started with no technical issues, I probably would have claimed uh, ownership of this and been the primary host. But since we had a couple minute delay there and a crooked camera... I think that this is probably yours. I'm willing to let you take this one. I would go so far as to say you were managing the stream setup and it's all kind of running through through your device. So I would say that that you're the producer and I'm the on-air talent in Interesting. this situation. All right. Well, someone said that technically the uh the good people joining us are the hosts given that we are going to open up the floor and, and take plenty of questions. That's true. I agree. Um, I agree, Jonathan. This is, and I, I appreciate you for going out on this limb. You you can take the L on our behalf. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> this is an interesting question just to get us started here. And by the way, everyone in the chat, uh, thanks for joining us. Someone asked, uh, Penguin asked, do you guys usually talk at 1x speed? And obviously the answer is <laughs> no. We, we clearly talk at about point seven speed yeah which is why uh greg have you ever talked to someone who listens to the podcast at 1x speed uh i don't think i've ever talked to someone who who listens to the podcast um but no so on that topic i will say i'm southern so i have an excuse but in your case you just talk slow well no you you're southern and that's your excuse per your own words i think a lot that's my excuse. <laughs> sure. I like to let ideas <laughs> percolate 
and I like to let them come out when they're ready, you know? So I, I, I do talk very slowly. Um, but it, it is funny when, when Aya and I, my girlfriend started dating, um, she had to basically relearn conversational cadences mm-hmm. because it became very apparent that if she did not slow herself down, she would simply never hear from me again. Like every time <laughs> I was about to formulate a thought and speak, the opportunity had passed by and the conversation just moved on without me. Yeah, so the the thing I'll say is that my my speaking cadence varies a lot based on what I'm talking about. Because uh, I also try to think and pick my words wisely when we're talking about science or research or anything like that. Um, but especially when you get any uh, any alcohol in my system, I think my speaking cadence... Either my speaking cadence roughly doubles or um, my, my mental processing slows down twofold. So I feel like I'm talking faster, but, um, yeah. And and also just like when I'm not talking about research, I, I am not quite as slow of a talker as normal. Anyway, that's enough about our speaking cadence. Uh, we're here to answer questions, uh, and, uh, you know, help, help out the folks who are tuning in live. So let's, uh, Let's jump right into it, I would say. Well, before we do that, though, if I may, um, first, obviously, you know, we want to thank everyone for joining us, but we also want to thank everyone, even if they're listening to this later on a recording, we want to thank everyone for your support during year one of Macro Factor. We launched 365 days ago. It's been a fantastic first year. Uh, We are so sincerely thankful for your support as users of Macro Factor. And also, you know, the way that we've approached this product and this company, I mean, we owe a lot to our users because of all the incredible feedback we've gotten over the last year between, uh, you know, the the Facebook group, the Reddit personal messages, the, uh, the public roadmap where people submit feature requests. Uh, you know, I, I think we do really view it as a bit of a collaborative effort where, mm-hmm. where the users really are part of the process here and part of the journey with, with Macro Factors development. So thank you so much for your support over the last year. And if you are interested in kind of taking a walk down memory lane, or if you're new to Macro Factor and you want to get caught up to speed and figure out how we got from launch to here, uh, we have a new article on the Macro Factor website by Lindsay. Mm-hmm. It is excellent. It is the annual report. So uh, macrofactorapp.com slash annual report 2022. And, and if you're listening live, I, I uh, linked it in the chat. That's what we can do with technology. We absolutely can. Uh, but it talks about a look back at our first year, how we got here, uh, and more importantly, where we're going moving forward. Yes. Uh, gives a, a little bit of a a hint about what the future has in store or a preview, I guess, for Macro Factor. So thanks so much for joining us. And if you want to check that out, it exists and it's fantastic. Lindsay did an incredible job with that. Absolutely. Uh, Now, let's go ahead and and respond to some questions. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So um, let's, let's just start with the question from Daniel Brown, who put a question in the chat before we even went live. Is there a way that I can... Actually, so it's through yours. Is there a button you can put, you can push to like distinguish a question, put it on screen? I don't know if that's a thing in YouTube chat. 
whatever. It doesn't matter. We're not. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I can just read it aloud. So uh, Daniel says, congrats on your first year. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I've been loving the app. What are what was the biggest unexpected challenge the team had to overcome in year one? Um, so I think personally, personally, I've been uh, very surprised at overall how smoothly things have gone. Um, Seems like a trap. Yeah, it, it does. Like I've I've described it as like almost eerily smoothly, like. Uh, you know, it, it's, it seems like kind of a, a road runner, uh, and Wiley Coyote type situation where the road has seemed too straight and clear. And it's like, we're going to run into a wall that the road runner has painted at some point. Um, but, but overall, like it's been pretty fucking smooth. I think that the biggest challenge we've had, at least, at least from our and mine and yours, is uh balancing work responsibilities J just because like we do have a decent number of irons in the fire and we are also like we're we're very active with specifically macro factor stuff interacting in the groups answering questions um you know talking to our developers Corey and rebecca about road mapping stuff um and yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm sure people don't care too much about the gory details, but you know, I, I would say that we're probably averaging around 20, 25 hours per week, specifically on macro factor stuff, which on top of stronger by science stuff, the podcast mass stuff is, you know, like it's, it's been at least somewhat challenging for me to do everything I need to do to contribute to macro factor while also maintaining at least like some semblance of work-life balance, which may not be what Daniel was getting at there. Cause that's not really an app related challenge, but I, I stand by my initial answer on that. Like that, that stuff has been going so much smoother than, than I could have anticipated. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind for me, it's, it's less of a headache for us and more just a general thing, but like, Anytime you get into a new industry or a new sector, there are just like weird little roadblocks that you have to navigate in terms of just the procedural elements. Um, and so like you would think that like between the different places where people get their apps and the different, um, what do they call like operating systems and mm -hmm. like you would think that there was like a really straightforward way that you just do one thing and then like both sides of that equation like the 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 google and the apple stores are both like oh excellent yeah that you followed the template that's very easy the fact that sometimes there are kind of different things you have to do uh behind the scenes to appease each one th that's been something that you know every now and then we're like you know you run into a little snag with that but mm -hmm. Corey and rebecca are really really good so they've navigated all that stuff so that we don't have to do yeah. any difficult things or think too hard oh yeah for sure <laughs> but um no it, it's been really really smooth and and yeah like you said the biggest thing is just biting off uh, another very very large project and and rearranging things to accommodate that yes all right so moving on ashley dawson says uh she loves micronutrient tracking but without any benchmarks to compare it against I don't know if I'm hitting optimal levels of each any plans to include guidelines or rdis in the app or where could I find those? Yeah, so that that isn't something we've implemented yet. But uh, like I said, we, we've linked the annual report in chat. 
you should check that out. I think you'll be uh, very pleasantly, hopefully not surprised, but but just pleased in general. So in terms of upcoming things for this forthcoming year, um, there's there's a lot that we want to get done, but the three like big high priorities right out of the gate are um, so if you've been using the app for a, a pretty good chunk of this year, you know that we um, like several several months ago uh, completely revamped the food logger. And once again, by we I mean Corey and Rebecca. Uh, Eric and I are not are not app developers. Um, and as part of that, there uh, there's a new design system within the app as well, which one is is just kind of to make it feel like a smooth, cohesive experience, and two. Uh, like part of the reason behind the new design system is so we can scale to other screen sizes. So uh, food logger was first. Next is if you currently have version 1.5.0 or later, you can opt into the beta of the dashboard redesign, which we're in the process of, of rolling out to everyone now. And then uh, kind of the last set of screens that we need to bring into compliance with the new design system just as kind of a, a priority that may not be exciting to everyone listening to this, but something that we definitely need to get done to make sure that the whole app is a cohesive visual experience is revamping the the food log or like the actual food log screen and the the nutri like the food detail view and day and review screens. So that's one thing we need to get done. Uh, another thing we need to get done, uh, once again, downstream of the new design system is rolling out a version for desktop and also like landscape view for tablets. Uh, and then our third really high priority going into this year is expanded micronutrient analytics. So things like RDAs, RDIs, uh, allowing you to specify particular things that you might want to keep an eye on. So if you want to um, monitor your fiber intake or like saturated fat intake or total water intake for the day and kind of like demarcate those as nutrients you want to pay specific attention to. That's one of the things uh, kind of under that story, being able to click on a particular micronutrient and see like what your top sources for getting or both micros and macros, like, you know, be able to click on iron and see what your top sources of iron are for the day or over a longer period of time. Um, so anyway, that that is the third of the like really high priorities going into this year. So you are correct for micronutrient tracking, uh, RDAs, RDIs, or, or DRIs, whatever you know that stuff better than yeah. me. Um, they're not in the app yet, but that that is uh, definitely an area where we're going towards this year. Yeah, and the good news is there there are until we get them directly placed into the app. There are a lot of different places. If you have a particular micronutrient that you're you're interested in, there are quite a few places online. Most a lot of government-run websites where you can just put in very basic demographic information, and you can get uh, the, the metric that you're looking for in yeah. terms of you know for each micronutrient. Some of them have an RDA, some have a DRI, some just have a, like a safe upper limit and lower limit and stuff like that. But usually that stuff isn't too hard to dig up on the internet. But absolutely a high priority is getting that stuff straight into the app so you don't have to do that digging in the future. All right, so uh, let's see. The Greek Trojan says, I know there are no silver bullets, but any interesting insights that you've data mined from successful dieters that you wouldn't have necessarily predicted? So no, uh, the reason for that in part is that Macrofactor is 
very, very uh, obsessed and preoccupied with data privacy. So uh, your data is end-to-end encrypted and it's stored on secure cloud servers. And like, I'm sure no one actually reads privacy policies, but if you read the privacy policy, like we, we aren't sharing your data with anyone and we aren't even using it for our own internal research purposes. Uh, We will at some point, uh, but when that occurs, there will be like a specific opt-in. So um, like, yeah, the, our, our capacity to data mine is inherently limited by uh, a very expansive privacy policy. So, you know, like essentially we're doing as little with your data as we possibly can to still make the app do what we want it to do. So, uh, yeah, no, we, we haven't gleaned any insights from data mining. Although again, that, that is something we'll probably be interested in, in the future though, again, after there's some sort of like specific opt-in. So users know they're letting us use their data for that purpose. Uh, but I would say just from interacting in, in the groups, uh, cause I mean, there, there have been plenty of people posting questions, challenges that they're facing, et cetera. I think that like, this isn't particularly exciting, but if anything, I think that like optimal weights of, or optimal rates of weight loss might even be slower than just kind of like normal recommendations suggest. Like I, I would say of probably three quarters of the people who post in the Facebook group or subreddit, they're having struggles with something. Um, most of the time, what helps them out is just reducing their target rate of weight loss. Because, uh, like, we, we can look at the research. Like, there's a difference between practicality and physiology. And physiologically speaking, like, most people are pretty fine from, like, a, a lean mass retention perspective going up to losing about 1% of body weight per week. But once you're, you know, I would say above, like, the mid hundred pounds like if you're anywhere close to like 200 pounds or certainly above um like losing around two pounds per week may not sound like much that's one percent per week if you're about 200 but that that does still imply approximately an a thousand calorie per day deficit where especially if you kind of have a uh like a thrifty metabolic phenotype or you just don't have a particularly active lifestyle like that thousand calorie per day deficit that like you'll you'll feel that so even though that is like a very physiologically tolerable um rate of weight loss it doesn't mesh that well with a lot of people's lifestyles or just how much that they're happy and content to eat so yeah i i think like i that that was something i already knew but it's just been like hammered home by like so many individual cases of people being like, hey, like if I'm hitting my numbers, things are going well, but my God, it's it's hard to hit my numbers. And I'm only aiming for like, you know, 0.81% of body weight per week. Like what's going on here? Um, and more often than not, just saying like, yeah, bump it down to like 0.4, 0.5% of body weight per week um, seems to help a lot of people. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's probably been, and like I said, that's that's not like cutting edge, mind blowing shit. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely been something that's, that's been hammered home for me. Yeah. You know, as much as I enjoy reading into the nitty gritty physiology research and as, as useful as that is, 
in developing this type of app. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's no question that, uh, you know, the physiologically, uh, you know, highest rate of weight loss within the optimal range, that's not always going to mesh really well with what is uh, subjectively enjoyable to implement, you know, and the more that we look into it and, and interact with users and even just going back to like one-on-one coaching and, and our own dieting experience, you know, you, you run into questions about what is, uh, what, what are some of the biggest challenges with successful weight loss and long-term maintenance of weight loss? Rarely do you have to go deep in the physiology playbook. It's usually some convergence of getting the right goal identifying the appropriate target for rate of weight change, and then addressing some of the psychological and behavioral elements that underpin eating behavior. And to me, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that so much thought and effort went into the way things are presented within the app is to make sure that we are not unnecessarily exacerbating, uh, you know, psychological and behavioral elements of dieting that are actually deleterious or can obstruct one's progress. You know, we, we try to make the app kind of a low stress environment where where we can say, okay, let, let's focus a little bit. You know, we, we know these targets are going to work, but, you know, like you said, a lot of times the advice is like, hey, let's let's slow down a little bit with the rate of weight loss, not because of necessarily physiology, but because of just behavior and psychology. And also, along with that, another thing that seems to be uh, v- very predictive of success and just subjective enjoyment of the process is having just a little bit of flexibility in terms of cognitive restraint. So sometimes, uh, you know, one of the things that can hold people back is, yeah, you know, maybe they are pursuing a rate of weight loss that is just not compatible with their lifestyle and preferences. And that needs to be addressed. But also sometimes aiming for perfection can really get in the way of making excellent but not quite perfect progress. You know, so sometimes people will, if they can't track perfectly for a day or two, they just kind of throw their hands up and say, screw it. And they get out of their typical habits and behaviors that have been supporting their success along the way. And so the people who are who are very comfortable with the idea of having very good, consistent uh, tracking, but not necessarily perfect tracking 100% of the time, those people seem to avoid that trap of getting overly discouraged and saying, well, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all and Mm -hmm. things like that. So um, like you said, rate of weight loss is big and also just kind of focusing on uh, psychological and behavioral elements that allow you to keep going through a little bit of friction, some challenges, some variables you didn't plan for. Um, that, that stuff can be really, really big. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so, uh, Jao Pedrosa, uh, said, or asks, do you have any plans on translating macro factor to Portuguese any day? Uh, I would like to give some months of it to my mom as a gift, but she doesn't speak English. Uh, first of all, hello to you and your mother. Uh, that's, that's a very nice thing for a son to do. But, uh, to answer your question, it's hard to say explicitly, um, and there are some things th- that are going through my head right now that I don't think I either can or should publicly talk about yet, but what I can say is that from a kind of short to medium term priority, 
Um, Corey and Rebecca are doing some work on the back end of the app to enable and open the door for internationalization. Uh, and, and there, there are just like a lot of little things that need to be done there. So like, for example, currently the text in the app is like all hard coded. So when you see just like nutrition on the nutrition panel, like in, in the code, it's just, it just says nutrition and that's what's being called. Um, so, you know, they're to enable internationalization instead of just like hard coding every single language, there's kind of like a, a process of development that involves, uh, going through and making sure for all of those text strings, it's not just calling for like a hard coded value, but based on the language someone, uh, uh, says that they use or the the region they're using the app in to know to call like specific uh strings to correspond with with the language the person uses um so i can't yet say precisely why they're doing that work but that is uh something that is that is currently uh in the works and going on behind the scenes um so to answer the question about portuguese specific you can say we're developing our own language uh, and macro factor is going to feature that. Yes, we're. Ah, uh, oh, fuck. I was gonna. I was gonna make a reference, but I. I forget what it is. What was that language in the '90s that people were Esperanto? I've this, never heard of this in my life. Oh man, in the in the '90s, like kind of during the the end of history, halcyon days after the Cold War ends, and people are like, "Ooh, this is going to be a a golden era of peace and prosperity," which like boy francis fukuyama you you sure would have felt dumb if you had access to a time machine in the 90s uh to see today anyway um there was this movement that to bring the world together with like a single international language where you know it's just kind of the the type of thing where like everyone could just become bilingual like you don't have to worry about learning multiple different languages if you want to interact with people all, all around the world it's just you know, if you're born in France, you learn French and Esperanto. If yeah. you're born in China, you learn like Mandarin or, or like whatever Chinese dialect is spoken in, in the region you're in and Esperanto. And it's just like one language that kind of like borrowed a little bit from a bunch of different language families. And it's like, yeah, just everyone learn this one and, and we'll be good. Um Anyway, I don't think fucking anyone speaks Esperanto. <laughs> uh, but no, so uh, getting back to answering the question, as far as Portuguese goes, that is not some... So, like, localizing the app for a Portuguese audience isn't something that is, sh- strictly speaking, in the imminent plans, but we are interested in the internationalization process and probably gradually over over a period of of years like not months but years um translating the app into uh other languages um and and kind of going global from there um and i will say just kind of on a on a gut level uh portuguese would be probably one of our higher priorities um in part just because like speaking very plainly the fitness industry is just so big in brazil like it it seems like a golden opportunity um so on that front like i certainly can't make any promises but if if we do start going further down the road of of internationalization um portuguese would probably i think it would comfortably be within our 
top 10 priorities for, for languages to get macro factor into, but uh, that that's not something to like keep, keep an eye out for, for the next year or anything like that. Yeah. Can I answer a question? Yeah, go for it. All right. We got a question from Beth. And the question is, how the heck do I get enough protein as a vegetarian who doesn't like dairy very much? Am I looking at two protein shakes a day for the rest of my life? So the reason I picked this is, you know, we do have uh, quite a few users in the app who are on vegetarian diets, obviously. uh, And I am indeed one of them. Um, And... Yeah, so there are a lot of different options trying to get more protein on a vegetarian diet. Um, You know, fortunately, one of the nice things about the app, I should say, before we get into specific protein sources, is there is a lot of flexibility where you can adjust your protein goal to to what works for you, right? So uh, I, I I think all too often people are a little bit nervous about going down to like, a moderate protein diet or even the low setting within the app and you know the the low setting within the app is not like absolute bare minimum to 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 be a healthy person right it's not like the bottom of the barrel rda for protein even the low protein is is kind of the lowest we would recommend for someone who has body composition related goals and it factors in obviously whether or not you're lifting weights and things like that so uh, low is not like you, you've probably heard in the fitness industry, you can't be on a low protein diet. First of all, I think the magnitude of the effect of under eating protein is probably overblown more often than not in the fitness industry. And also low for us is low within the app. It's not like a categorically low protein diet overall. So that's the first thing to stay. Uh, the second thing is uh, there's a lot of different protein sources that are compatible with a vegetarian diet. Uh, you know, um, so, you know, someone mentioned, you know, eggs, whey protein are, are still on the table. I think the question basically said, don't like dairy very much. So maybe whey being dairy based is also off the table. Uh, protein shakes. Obviously there are non-dairy protein shakes. Uh, I personally have a, a pea based protein shake that I really like. It's, uh, took a minute to get used to. I'm not going to lie. It's not as good as a dairy-based protein shake in terms of flavor. Uh, But I I honestly think that's an unforced error. They decided to not use artificial sweeteners. And like, Mm. is is it stevia, quote unquote, sweetened? uh, I think they used monk fruit extract, which is better than stevia. That's not that bad. Yeah, but but I think they could have gone a long way if they just used some different things for texture and sweetening. I, I think... They were trying to thread the needle and say, like, this is not just vegan, but it's also, like, nothing artificial of any kind. And it's like, some artificial stuff is very good. Like, it's very nice. So, um, but anyway, you know, there's a lot of different uh, protein supplements that are out there for uh, vegetarian and vegan diets. Uh, Eggs are, are... out there it's a thing you could do and if you live in a a, if you live close enough to a rural area where there's a lot of farming if you are on a vegetarian diet more for just like animal welfare related reasons like i get my eggs from an animal rescue where the chickens are actually rescued and uh they're happy as can be they they honestly have a better life than i do uh so (laughs) They, they always joke that it's mainly a, an, an animal rescue for dogs and they, they get like, they get like 
a couple thousand dogs a year placed into homes through this rescue. Like it's a huge, huge uh, dog rescue that they run, but they rescue uh, uh, farm animals as well. And they just have this huge compound and all the animals are chilling and you know, the chickens are going to lay their eggs anyway. So they're like, cool, we'll sell them. And then the proceeds go to the, you know, taking care of the other animals. So nice. It's pretty cool. So you might be able to find a situation like that. Um, but then when it comes to just good old fashioned plant-based sources, there's a lot out there. Um, you know, tofu, I, my first experience with tofu was not good cause I didn't know what to do with it. But mm -hmm. with tofu, you can do some really nice things. Like if you use uh, a little bit of uh, cornstarch and, and cook it, you can crisp it up really well such that it imitates, uh, meat in a lot of different dishes that call for like a nice crispy kind of textured meat. Um, so tofu is, has a lot of versatility. You'll see tofu used in things all the way from as, almost as like a meat stand-in to like desserts, you know, with some of the softer tofus. Uh, what's the one? Seitan, I, I think. Um, I don't know how you pronounce that. I've always just assumed it was like Seton or Satan. Yeah. But there's no way that's correct. Probably not. But but it's very good. Um, yeah. You know, you, you'll find that a lot uh, in, in various vegetarian dishes. Uh, a lot of different beans and legumes th that I like to lean on. Um, so like, uh, you know, if, if you get like a rice cooker, you can do, I mean, rice with chickpeas and literally like any kind of bean or legume, uh, you know, th that's kind of a staple meal for me. Um, but yeah, th there's a lot of different options out there. One thing that I would recommend though, if you're like just getting into a vegetarian diet or you've been doing it for a while and just sticking to a very, very small list of staples explore cuisines in areas where meat just isn't eaten that regularly or is harder to come by. Like one of the things that my girlfriend and I are both vegetarian when we're traveling, one of the first things we do is like, if, if we're just struggling to find a place with options, it's like, if we can find a restaurant that serves a lot of Indian food or a lot of Vietnamese food, like there are certain cuisines where there are so many vegetarian options. You can start there look at a menu and figure out where the protein is coming from in those dishes because you know people like to arrange their dishes with a decent amount of protein in them it's it's kind of even if it's coming from plant-based sources so uh yeah i would say exploring different cuisines and seeing how they work different types of plant-based sources into that cuisine that that's been a really helpful approach for me sounds good all right so uh penguin asks what's your what's your favorite nutrient uh, Penguin themselves is a big calcium fan. Do, do you have a favorite nutrient? Ooh, boy. Favorite nutrient. Um, well, I, I guess I would have to say protein mm -hmm. because if you exist in the sport nutrition world, it's just uh, you, you can't make it out of there alive without developing a great appreciation for protein and frankly, it is kind of how I how I structure my meals. I, I start out by saying, okay, what's my protein source here? And then I build out from there. So protein is is kind of the generic one. Um, and yeah, I think that's unfortunately the one I'm going to have to settle with. What about you? Uh, probably. So I'm Googling something real quick. Oh, boy. Um, so my, my first thought was probably uh, lecithin. Uh, it's a good emulsifier and I, I like making, uh, emulsified sauces and whatnot. Um, but then my other, like probably just like any of the ones that, that make onions taste like onions. 
it's hard to overstate how much I like onions. I think they're delicious. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna try to pronounce too many of these. Oh, Allison is in there. That's, that's the big one from garlic. Uh, but yeah, like any, any of those, those, uh, nice pungent sulfurous compounds from onions, I think are incredibly pleasant. Awesome. Uh, let's see. So here, here's something that, that I think you could talk about a bit, just, uh, talking about rigid versus flexible, uh, cognitive restraint. Uh, Ashley Dawson, uh, specifically says, uh, from a psychological approach, she loves the adherence neutral, uh, philosophy within macro factor. Um, she says, personally, if I've gone over my recommended cows for the day, I don't need any red lines or in-app callouts to rub it in. Do you want to just like expand on that from like a cognitive restraint perspective? Cause I, I think that is something that folks are maybe confused about initially when they start using macro factor, especially if they come from, uh, kind of more traditional and restrictive kind of dieting backgrounds. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we've covered it in bits and pieces, just kind of part by part over the past year or so. But one of the overarching goals with macro factor was to make sure that we were designing it such that the user experience and the design elements were reflective of what we consider to be best practices uh, in terms of just being compatible with the health psychology literature. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we were developing uh, macro factor, as you know, Greg, I got really into reading health psychology textbooks um, and just digging into the literature and, and saying like, where can we improve upon the current model of how a lot of these food tracking apps operate? And I didn't have to get too many pages in <laughs> before I realized that almost like the industry norm, the kind of standard approach is really incompatible with uh, a lot of the research pertaining to uh, health psychology, specifically as it pertains to eating behaviors. Yeah. Um, there was a fantastic review paper a couple Ooh, of years can, ago. Can I just butt in real quick? I, I sure. scroll to the bottom of the chat uh, for the first time in a while uh, someone was asking where, so, so Huffman tree asks, uh, are they answering questions from this chat or is it somewhere else? We are answering questions from chat. We're, uh, like trying to address them in, in roughly the order they came in. So if you scroll back like two thirds of the way, that's, that's where we currently are. Um, so yes, this is the place to an to answer questions. Uh, and I will, try to do a better job of bouncing back and forth between kind of the bottom of the chat and top of the chat. But yes, if you're watching this live and, and asking questions live, we are exclusively taking uh, questions from, from the YouTube chat here. So yeah, uh, you, you are in the right place to, to be asking questions there. Yeah. So, um, you know, there was a great review paper a couple of years ago that uh, my arch nemesis, Dr. Eric Helms, was a co-author on, uh, <laughs> a very inferior Eric. But uh, they, they talked about some of the research involving rigid versus flexible cognitive restraint. And someone enforcing rigid restraint uh, ha has a tendency to create really rigid guidelines and dichotomize their adherence to those guidelines, right? So... My goal was 180 carbs today, and if I eat 183 carbs today, I failed because I went over, and that's bad. That, that's kind of an, an example of rigid cognitive restraint, 
And what we find is that in the short term, employing rigid cognitive restraint in the context of dieting uh, is subjectively uh, a bit unfavorable. It, it tends to lend itself to some very negative psychological processes uh, and just subjectively a, a, a low enjoyment of the process of dieting. So looking at just purely subjective and psychological outcomes in the short term, uh, a flexible uh, approach to cognitive restraint is much more preferable. It, it seems to support a happier, more enjoyable experience with dieting. Uh, and, and so, but, you know, some people say, well, I'm, I'm really hardcore about my dieting. I don't need to enjoy it. I just want to, you know, put my head down, put in the work, trust the process and do the damn thing. Unfortunately, what we find also is that rigid cognitive restraint also just doesn't seem to lead to favorable long-term outcomes with dieting. You know, mm -hmm. it, it seems to be uh, over the long term, a very demotivating factor that can lead to what they call motivational collapse and ultimately the cessation of a diet. Basically, you discontinue the diet because you are very frustrated because you've set all these rigid guidelines, frame them as dichotomous, and you just find, based on your internal framing, that you fail and fail and fail and fail. And so at some point you say, why do I keep trying this? Like, I'm clearly not doing this well. So flexible cognitive restraint offers a completely different alternative where you give yourself some wiggle room, you, you give yourself a little bit of flexibility and you say, okay, my goal is to eat, you know, 180 grams of carbs a day. If I eat 189 sometimes and 173 sometimes, sometimes I might even go way over. But after I go way over, I get back on track the next day. You're giving yourself some flexibility and the goal is to routinely get close to the objective not be perfect every single time with no deviations. And so it doesn't become a success or fail type of situation. It becomes a closer or further from target type of situation. So we, we try to be really, really intentional about how the app actually functions mechanically so that we reinforce flexible cognitive restraint as people are approaching targets. And then when it comes to just the feedback and the design elements, we wanted to make sure that we are not giving demotivating messages that are punitive, you know, numbers turning red, thing, you know, warnings and, and flashing banners and all stuff like that. We try to make sure that the, the app, uh, one of the terms we use is a diet sidekick, you know, where it is supporting you along the way, supporting a flexible, sustainable approach to dieting, and ultimately serving as a form of very positive guidance as you go along. So, mm -hmm. Uh, it was a very intentional effort, and the biggest misconception people have in this area is people call any form of dieting where you have macro targets or calorie targets, people tend to group that into this kind of category that they call flexible dieting. And what they mean by that term is it is flexible with regards to food source. Yeah. So your 20 grams of protein can come from chicken or eggs or tofu. That's the kind of flexibility that they're talking about with that term. But there are a lot of people who do flexible dieting with extremely rigid cognitive restraint. And so what we wanted to do was leverage that health psychology research, implement it, and make sure that we supported uh, users in their journey and, and made sure that we reinforced flexible restraint. All right, so let's, uh, let, let's get an exercise question. And also, just so you guys know... Um, 
you know, this is a one-year uh, celebration for Macro Factor, but we we are here to answer questions about virtually anything. Um, so I'm not seeing that many training questions in the chat, which is totally fine. But it, j just letting people know it's not like we're only on here to talk about Macro Factor and promote it. Uh, so let's just let's just address a completely unrelated question from Mori Kogoro. Any tips on bouncing out of the hole for Astagrass squats? Uh, sometimes I'll get it right and the rep feels way lighter and easier. So yeah, if you have, um, if you are doing Astagrass squats and you, and you want to get kind of bouncy with it, uh, my biggest tip would be to control the eccentric pretty well most of the way down. So when I see people who have who are trying to get like a, a good bounce out of the bottom of a squat, specifically doing astrograph squats, like really deep squats, uh, more often than not, if it if their bounce is like pretty inconsistent and and they feel like they don't have a good groove, a lot of times it's because they're kind of starting their their rapid descent a little bit too high. So, um, like generally, if you're going for a bounce, your the the end of your eccentric is generally going to be relatively quick for that rapid rebound maybe a bit of of stretch shortening cycle action coming into the mix um but what's important there is to make sure that you have a really smooth and solid repeatable groove on all of your reps and so when i see people with with inconsistent bounces most of the time it's because they have inconsistent grooves and most of the time they have inconsistent grooves because they're either going too fast for the eccentric or they're starting the kind of fast final descent a bit too high. So one of the things that might help with your consistency is taking a pretty well-controlled, relatively slow eccentric down to the point where you're only like just above parallel uh, and then only for that very, very bottom part of of the the eccentric do you just kind of like let go slightly let yourself accelerate into the hole and then bounce up out of there so uh essentially like it's it's a lot easier to stay under control and in like a smooth and repeatable groove if that drop is short rather than if the drop is long uh and also like and this is just kind of my my n equals one experience um like i've experimented quite a bit with with eccentric speed because I, I also do, especially for like max lifts, uh, rely pretty heavily on that bounce. And I found that like it really only needs to be maybe four or five inches tops. Like you you don't want to be be going fast for like the entire eccentric. Find yourself in the bottom and be like, oh, where the fuck am I? Hopefully I get a good bounce. Um, so keep like that nice, smooth, slow descent most of the way down. And then, yeah, for, for the last like, maybe four to six inches, that's where you get that little drop, bounce, poop, and and come up. And that that should be uh quite a bit more repeatable than uh than the alternative. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I used to squat a uh, low bar astagrass bouncing out of the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh man, being young is nice. Uh low bar astagrass is quite a feat. I used to have the <laughs> hips for it and I don't anymore. Uh, I've got a question I'd like to answer that is just kind of a general guidance about uh, cutting. 
mm-hmm. you know, this comes up a lot. So Matt B asked, um, so Matt, Matt B is about five weeks into a cut. It's going well. Congratulations, Matt. Glad to hear that. Uh, but Matt does not have an end goal in mind. And so the question is, you know, how should Matt know when to stop with the cut? And a lot of people have been asking questions in this general genre of like, when do I, when should I stop cutting? How long am I allowed to cut before I need to do a maintenance phase? How long should that maintenance phase be? You know, there's a lot of questions in that general area. And the good news, which is uh, minimally helpful, but maximally flexible, is it, it really, there's no right or wrong answer here. So knowing when you end a cut uh, is basically exclusively dictated by how you're feeling, both in terms of, you know, how you feel about your progress and how you are currently feeling in the moment as someone who's on a diet. So uh, a lot of times people are, people will ask like, do I need to do maintenance phases in between to make the cut successful? And the answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. But there could be very good reasons to do maintenance phases along the way. When someone goes from an energy deficit into a, a bit of a maintenance phase, whether that's one week or two weeks or 12 weeks, just getting into neutral energy balance can do a lot of really positive things. You know, subjectively, you can feel a lot better, more energetic. It can give you a little boost in your exercise, your activity level. You know, it might help your your hunger levels um, uh, calm down a little bit. There, there can be a lot of nice things that occur during a maintenance phase that basically allow you to metaphorically recharge your battery so then you can reinitiate fat loss uh, just from a, a place where you're feeling really up for the task and ready for another, you know, a lot of people kind of treat it in phases, right? Where you, mm-hmm. you do a successful fat loss phase, you say, okay, I'm going to kind of, you know, I'm a little bit psychologically fatigued from dieting. I'm kind of, in terms of lifestyle, sick of having such a low calorie target. Uh, physiologically, I feel like a maintenance phase would do me some good. At that point, people take some time, take a break, you know, a little maintenance phase, and then when they feel ready to, to really dig in for another fat loss phase, they dive right back in. So that, that's a very justifiable way to go. But in terms of when the whole process is over and you say, okay, I've arrived, you know, fat loss is done. Now we're maintaining long term. That's, that's completely dependent on your goals and preferences. You know, so people go into a fat loss phase for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's related to performance. Sometimes it's to achieve a particular aesthetic look. Sometimes it's to make progress with regards to some uh, cardiometabolic risk factor. Like someone might say, I'm going to cut until my blood sugar gets to this or my, my you know, uh, blood pressure gets to that. So there's a lot of different reasons to do a fat loss phase or to pursue that type of goal. And therefore, there are a lot of different metrics that would allow someone to determine that, you know what, right now it's time to discontinue. So, uh, no reason is more justifiable than any other. It, it could be any number of reasons. And one one reason would be, you know what? I thought I wanted to get down to 230, but I'm at 245 and I feel excellent. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And, and that's a completely justifiable reason to say, all right, we're ready to move on to the next phase. So there, there's no hard number that says when a cut should be over. And there's really no guideline about you know when maintenance phases should be done or how long they have to be. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Should I should I take a, a more recent or an older question in the chat? What do you think, Trex? Uh, 
whatever whatever's on your heart all right uh okay so uh i'll just address a very quick app related one from jay brody uh, he says on the new update, you can't see the current rate anymore on the trend weight page. Was that intentional? How do you know if you're on target? Uh, I thought it was good to see that to uh, prevent too aggressively uh, bulking or cutting. And uh, I got something to show you for the camera. So uh, you, UJ, are probably on either 1.5.0 or 1.5.1 right now. If you're on 1.5.2, uh, on the weight trend page, you should get a little something that looks like what I am about to show the camera. Right now for the audio audience, um, there's a really interesting scene developing. Greg is holding his phone up to the camera. And uh, yeah, very good, Greg. <laughs> so ho hopefully that was visible. Uh, I could not see my screen as I was holding that up. But yeah, in, in 1.5.2, uh, all of those trends and even more are there. So uh, yeah, you can you can uh, keep track of things over even more time scales than ever before. Cool. I've got two very important things to point out. Uh, number one, according to Beth, William Shatner filmed an entire movie in the Esperanto language. Good for Very him. cool. Good job, Bill. Uh, oh, and someone else mentioned Esperanto started before the 90s. I'm aware, uh, if you'll roll the tape, I said <sighs> Esperanto got big in the 90s. It's never been popular, but its peak of popularity was in, in the halcyon days of the 90s. Uh, so yes, I, I am aware that Esperanto did start before then. Another thing I wanted to point out, I mentioned my arch nemesis, Eric Helms. I did not know that he would be dropping in. <laughs> do, do we know that this is the real Eric Helms? He said he called us gents. That's Helms. That that is that is a Helms thing. Yeah, that's that, true. That is not fake. So, um, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, Doctor Helms, the great Doctor Helms, an esteemed researcher, a top level fitness professional, just the utmost respect that I have for him. Uh, and it's an honor that he said that we are his third favorite podcast of all time. Cause I'm for, I'm sure the first two are his, uh, knowing his personality and the kind of human he is, you know, I didn't even know he had a, is there a three DMJ podcast? Yeah, I think okay, so. Cool. Yeah. I like, I, I say this not as a bit at all. I can, I don't listen to any fitness podcasts, <laughs> so I, I didn't mean that as, as a slight to, uh, the good Dr. Helms or three DMJ or the concept of fitness podcasts. I'm just, uh, incredibly out of the loop. Yeah. Ooh, here's a good one. A little bit of uh, general nutrition satiety, Greg, you know, satiety does the literature support the idea that uh, satiety cues change when gaining or losing weight? And Greg, uh, what have your experiences been with changes in satiety on your journey? Um, I, I would start, you know, before we, we get your personal journey, um, you know, th there's definitely some pretty pronounced changes that occur with hunger and satiety regulation that are responsive to both short-term and long-term energy availability. Um, we had, uh, when you look at satiety, it, it, it can become a very complex thing, uh, but it can also lend itself to some very, very simple guidelines, which I, I find to be really fascinating. 
Uh, so for example, what I'm getting at is, you know, we had a guest article in the Mass Research Review a couple years back, um, written by a, you know, someone who's really into neuroscience and, and done a lot of research in that area and was talking about the, the really complex interplay of systems that regulate hunger and satiety in terms of just the brain structures. So, you know, aside from just like food characteristics and, and dieting and things like that, but the neurophysiological integration of satiety control is very, very fascinating and absolutely very susceptible to alteration based on both short-term and long-term uh, modifications in energy availability. So, you know, extreme examples, fasting for a few days, very pronounced changes in hunger and satiety rela um, relationships and management, uh, losing and gaining considerable amounts of weight, very, very pronounced changes as well. Uh, but it, it's so funny because you look at some of the uh, guidelines that come from it and it's simple stuff. It's like if you're struggling with, you know, really low satiety, high hunger, basic things, eating foods with low energy density, uh, preferably below like 1.5 or 2 kilocalories per gram. And, you know, we're, that's basically meaning foods that have take up a lot of space on your plate. They have a lot of water, usually a lot of fiber content per serving. Um, you know, those types of foods help fill up your belly. That's a positive thing because the the actual acute distension of, you know, the, the pressure on the, the stomach does matter. Um, eating slowly. That, that affects the old incretin response. The yeah. GIP, GLP-1, all, all of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, eating things with harder textures. And you might be wondering, why would that matter? It's because it slows you down. You have to chew more if there's harder texture. And eating slower and more mindfully causes you uh, not just to give your satiety signals an opportunity to respond to energy intake, um, but also there is some some research indicating that just spending more time with that food and paying more attention to the flavors, the aromas, the texture, the smell, that seems to almost modulate satiety responses in a way that appears to be related to memory and cognition. Uh, so satiety is, fa is, is really fascinating. There are all these different uh, nuanced inputs that regulate it, but in many cases, the, the take-home points are actually uh, quite intuitive. But Greg, what have you experienced with satiety? So uh, <laughs> I think one of my issues in general is that I don't think I'm particularly responsive to satiety cues. Um, I rarely feel particularly hungry, and I also rarely feel particularly full. Uh, but I also just really enjoy food and I enjoy the sensation of eating, which is why I think when I'm not tracking and left to my own devices, I just gradually gain weight. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't feel any more ish, any more or less issues with satiety now than I did when I, when I started my cut. So, yeah. uh, w which I think based on the literature is probably atypical, but yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm like an, an under responder to satiety cues. So if, if I could share a, un well, it sounds unique, but it isn't um, an, an odd scenario that happens with, uh, so I, back in the day, I did competitive bodybuilding uh, two sport professional athlete, but I don't want to bring a lot of attention to that. I don't want that to be the whole point of the podcast. You, you don't, you don't want everyone who refers to you to add the epitaph, the Bo Jackson of bodybuilding. Correct. I, I really don't want that to occur. So everyone, please stop sending me those messages. But 
after competitions, it's not that unusual for competitors to be in a position where because there's this massive dysregulation of both satiety related regulation, but also just psychological factors of food intake. A lot of times after the final competition of a year, you'll see physique athletes who are in this very odd position that's difficult to explain. Uh, You kind of have to feel it and you have to be there, but you're eating food and you have filled your stomach and you're like, I am like, I can tell that eating more food is not in my best interest. I'm going to feel like shit. I already feel like shit because I've eaten too much. And yet you have this desire to continue eating that isn't even purely hedonic. It's not just like, oh, I like the taste of food. I'd like to taste more. But it's this weird thing where you're like, I know that I am not hungry right now. I'm actually quite full. And yet for some reason, my satiety signals are not telling me to discontinue. And I still feel a non-hedonic urge to eat that isn't hunger. Mm-hmm. Or, or that isn't, uh, yeah, that isn't hunger. It, it's a very strange situation, but like the reason I bring it up is it gets to the most extreme scenario of like how weird and wacky can satiety regulation get disrupted with major changes in body composition. And yeah, there's this weird situation you can get into in, in that specific scenario that is immensely difficult to describe. And I, I think it's just a... <laughs> a biological response drilled into our basic code as humans that it's like, I don't care about hedonic stuff or hunger. You need to eat because you're like four and a half percent body fat and you're going to die soon if you don't eat. Yeah. Um, But yeah, satiety just gets so weird when you get down to those low body fat levels. Yeah, I I can't relate. I know nothing about that. It's odd, But, Uh, but it's repeatable. And another thing that's interesting is and this is getting way off topic but something that i i think people will be like morbidly fascinated with i've talked to more than a few bodybuilders i wonder if there's research on this i'm not certain who basically display i think they might have mentioned this in the minnesota minnesota starvation experiment almost like uh scavenging behaviors Mm -hmm. where people will start to just kind of go to the grocery store and hang out Mm -hmm. and just check out what's going on in the aisles and maybe even get some things that they don't plan to eat for several months. And I've even heard of people hoarding like utensils and cooking supplies and saying like, oh, in four months, boy, am I going to use this spatula? Like yeah. it gets it gets very odd psychologically. As a appreciator of the sport of bodybuilding, I have to say the more I learn about it, specifically from like competitors relaying their experience, the more it just seems like the most deranged sport in the world. Like, I, I don't know why anyone does it. You know, but that's it's, but it's also cool. It's it's an it, yeah, that that's a whole podcast unto itself is what is this and why? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so here here's a personal one from the bees. Do you guys have any sports related goals? Road to the stage platform. Have you or your or have your perspectives and priorities changed over the years? Uh, so yeah, we we no longer do the road to the stage or road to the platform segments on the Stronger by Science podcast. We're trying to trying to trim it down, make it a, a tight svelte uh, package, uh, and just kind of getting into the content quicker. For, so, um, for example, our last episode was a very tight two and a half hours. So we're making great progress. There. It's as tight as it could have been given the amount of content. <laughs> I will say. Um, 
But yeah, yeah. So uh, sport related goals. So my uh, my current and ongoing weight loss is. I wouldn't say it's with sport goals in mind, but it is with kind of like physical kind of athletic related goals in mind. Um, I, so I'm not uh, particularly interested anymore in necessarily trying to be the best power lifter I can possibly be. Um, and, And I find that I train best, lift best, and I'm just, just stronger at a, at a higher body fat level, which is, one of the reasons I've been larger for most of the most of the last decade, like like on a on a pure physiological basis, like fat tissue doesn't have contractile properties, but like I'm I'm just like way stronger at like twenty five percent plus body fat than I am when I'm lean. I don't know why, but uh, that's been my very consistent, repeatable experience. Me too. By um, the way, sweet. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not I'm not living that same life anymore. Um and essentially there are a lot of things that I that I like to do that I do better. Like essentially I'm strongest when I'm larger and everything else is better when I'm smaller. <laughs> um, like it's just easier to move around a lot without getting tired or winded. Um I'm a lot more explosive, I'm a lot faster. And, uh, like I love playing basketball. And so in terms of just like acute goals, like I'm, I'm not really planning on joining like a competitive league or anything like that, but I'm still 30. I still have what I'm going to consider another decade of youth ahead of me. Um, who knows how honest I'm being with myself, but that's, that's the way I'm approaching it. Uh, and so just for like pickup ball, I I want to, get to the point where I can physically dominate people the way that I like to be able to, which like I'm, I'm always going to be strong enough to, to do what I need to do on the court, but I don't have as fast of a first step as I would like to have. And as I previously had, and I don't have the verticality to my game that I used to. Um, so I, I want to get those two things back. And in terms of just like a kind of marker that I'm working towards, um, I used to be able to barely dunk if I got the perfect alley oop, um, and I, I I want to I want to get to where I can like very convincingly dunk, like not do anything acrobatic, but just you know convincingly and without any sort of fanfare, just be able to get on a court, and if I get an open fast break, just be able to very reliably put it down. Um, so yeah, more than anything, that's that's probably my my biggest uh, uh, physical goal, and and the thing that motivates me for the weight loss more than anything else. Um, and in terms of how my priorities have changed over time, you know, I'm I'm uh, just just trying. Like I used to be all about just sports and being a general athlete, um, and being physically capable of being really good at a lot of things, and then I spent. Uh, a little over a decade really focusing on one thing that I wanted to be good at, which was just being as strong as possible. And so now I'm, I'm going back to my roots uh, and, and trying to become more of more of a generalist again. Yeah, you should. Uh, what year was it that Vince Carter had that crazy dunk contest? Was that 2004? 
I don't know. I'll I'll search while you're answering. Now that we're doing more stuff on YouTube, you should get to the point where you can just recreate that shot for shot and we'll put it up and people will enjoy it. It was 2000. Yeah, 2000. I, I, I didn't think it was 04. Well, but yeah. you can't blame me. He, he was still playing like a year ago. That is true. That is which true. Which is crazy. Dude, he was... He was still good too. I, I think I think he still had like a positive plus minus his last year. Yeah, uh, but for me, um, you know, I this is an interesting question. So like, I don't really have any desire to do anything hyper competitive at the moment. Um, but over, the, uh, you know, there's no question that over the last couple years, I've been really, really, really focused on making a lot of like content and doing a lot of coaching and stuff like that. Like, I think I've been heavily focused on work in a way that's detracted from my general enthusiasm for virtually everything outside of work, including training. Mm -hmm. uh, and my my enthusiasm for training really took a hit because I had some ongoing like back and hip issues that I've really, really struggled with. And I use the past tense there for no reason at all. Like it's it's not it's not in a good place yet. But um I do think that it is time to really tighten things up with my training. I, I'm actually feeling as motivated as I ever have to get back to a spot where I feel you know, I'm not like going to compete in anything, but I want to get back to a spot where I feel very, very, very proud of my overall general strength level, conditioning level and physique. So like you said, kind of an all around kind of deal where I feel very strong, very capable from a cardio respiratory perspective and just feel like, you know what, this shirt, I'm making it look really good right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a while since I really felt that way deep down. And it's a cool feeling when you get there. And I, yeah, I think in the next year or so, I'm very enthusiastic about getting back to that spot where I just have a, a really high level of confidence in my strength and, uh, you know, just general physical capacity. Sounds good, man. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but we should, we should play, we should play some sports together, put some shots up. You played baseball I think there's a, a field nearby. We can have like a little home run derby or something like that. That might be fun. So I have... Play some pickleball. I've thought about... Um, there was... I, I was thinking about getting into recreational sport leagues. Like I would love to play flag football. Mm -hmm. I'd be all about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think that getting back into sports would be a lot of fun. Sweet. Uh, let's see. Were there, were there any questions you were eyeing? Um, not, not specifically, but I've been in my own world answering that previous one. I have to look around here. Yeah, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, let's see. Uh, Pickian Chang asks a training question. Thoughts on three minutes rest for hypertrophy. Uh, that's great. Um, the, the two issues you can run into when talking about rest intervals for uh, for either a strength or hypertrophy perspective is that if rest intervals get too short, uh, it can compromise performance on the next set, which is unavoidable to some extent. Like even if you're resting 10 minutes between sets, if you're really pushing sets hard, performance is going to drop off over time. 
But if you're not resting long enough, that, you know, can accelerate the process. And potentially downstream of that, or potentially just from other factors, um, we there's there's reasonably reliable research showing that if you're not resting long enough between sets, you're probably leaving some hypertrophy on the table. So uh, at least looking at like two or three minutes of rest between sets. The other issue you can run into is just resting too long, um, which isn't a problem per se, except from an efficiency perspective, like you're not really getting anything for it, but it just makes your workouts take longer. So if I were, if I were to give kind of like a one size fits all, how long should I rest between sets answer, it would probably be around three minutes per set. Um, for a slightly more nuanced answer, you can probably go shorter than that for kind of like single joint accessory lifts. May not be a bad idea to go longer than that for compound exercises, especially lower body exercises, especially if you're reasonably strong and especially if you're doing moderate or higher rep ranges. Um, but yeah, somewhere around three minutes seems to get the job done. If you go to the gym and you kind of have a timer on you and you're like, man, I'm resting three minutes between sets and that feels like forever. And I, I feel like I'm just not using my time efficiently. Um, then something you could try just to use your time a little bit more efficiently is a superset approach where you either go with an agonist antagonist superset. So that means basically just muscles that do opposite things. So maybe do... Uh, like like knee extensions and hamstring curls, like knee flexion, knee extension, uh, or like the classic buys and tries supersets, uh, you know, bench press and rows, overhead press, pull up, something like that. Uh, so agonist antagonist supersets. There's some research suggesting that that actually improves performance, that you'll like do better for the exercises you're training if you do an agonist-antagonist superset versus just straight sets. That's an area where, honestly, like the research says, oh, it might improve performance. I don't buy it. Uh, this could be my N equals 1 experience. I've never noticed that. Like if, if I superset bench press with rows, bench is still fine, but I, I find that if anything, performance is, is a little bit lower instead of being maintained or uh, improved. But the, the difference shouldn't be particularly large, and that should be a, a way to use your time a little bit more effectively. Or like an agonist distant superset. Um, that's probably not the right terminology. But, you know, like uh, pairing like an upper body exercise with a lower body exercise. Just something that's not training the same prime movers. Uh, also shouldn't compromise performance too much, but will let you kind of increase the density of your training. Um, or you could find something to do between sets to like pursue some other goal you have that wouldn't necessarily detract from your lifting. So for example, if you're trying to improve like hip flexion mobility or something like that, uh, and you're currently doing pull-ups, you know, you could do a set of pull-ups and then like stretch your hamstrings for a minute or two between sets, uh, which would be using that time productively, but in a way that's not going to detract from the exercises you're doing to ensure that you're you're resting as long as you probably should. So um, yeah, those are my thoughts about uh, three minutes of rest between sets for hypertrophy. Good stuff. I've got a couple that I want to address. One of them is going to be very quick here. So question from Lift Stronger. 
Uh, I'm just so tickled by this. The question is, any plans to include protein quality scores in a future update so people who eat a variety of incomplete protein sources can gauge how they may need to adjust their diet to meet protein requirements? Greg, you're the only human in the world right now who knows why I'm so tickled by this. Greg and I recorded uh, our next podcast episode just minutes before we sat down for this uh, live edition and that is literally the the main focal point of a segment that will be in the next uh, Stronger by Science podcast episode. So we are switching over to that Monday publishing um, schedule. But if you keep an eye on the YouTube page, I think some of the segments are going to trickle out on, on Wednesdays and Fridays before it goes up on Monday, um, next Monday, not this Monday. But anyway, keep an eye on, on the podcast and the YouTube page. We're going to have a like 40 minute segment exactly on that question, more or less. Uh, the short version is we're always interested in putting in analytics that are informative and actionable. I'm not saying that we would never put that in from an analytics perspective, but I don't currently view that as a high priority item because as I discuss in that that longer segment, I think that focusing on really small differences in protein quality scores within the context of, of an entire diet, I don't think that that effort is fruitful or particularly worthwhile. And in the podcast episode, I, I talk about how the research generally indicates if you're meeting some very basic general guidelines for protein intake, with the most important one being total protein intake for the day, and the second most important being how you distribute that throughout the day. Any small differences in protein quality scores have very minimal impacts on things like muscle protein synthesis measured acutely and essentially negligible impacts on hypertrophy over time within some very specific uh, constraints that I mentioned in, in the podcast. But the, the, the short version is for most people, Worrying about protein quality scores in a balanced diet is really not a worthwhile endeavor. So there's not a a high priority or sense of urgency for getting that particular analytic into the app. Um, yeah, I, I think that's all I had to say on that. Oh, one thing I should mention, though, is like, you know, a lot of times people will get really caught up in, in protein quality scores and, and say like, I, I think I'm eating too many plant-based proteins or too many low quality proteins. The typical omnivorous diet, um, you know, is usually a, a relatively even mixture of high quality and low quality animal-based and plant-based sources. And there's really no evidence to suggest that adjusting your uh, protein quality sources within the context of that diet is really going to move the needle at all in terms of promoting strength and hypertrophy over time. The other question I wanted to answer is hiding from me. Did you have one that you wanted to mention? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, here, here's a good uh, kind of retrospective question since this is the Macro Factor one-year anniversary. Looking back on the first year, do you have any regrets or things you would have done differently if given the chance to redo it all? Um, and that is a difficult question to answer, I would say, because there are 
So, you know, it, it's one of those things where you can learn a lot or, or just kind of like know a lot from like, you know, uh, uh, like I, I don't want to use this phrase, but like book learning basically. And you can go into something with a, a game plan and a set of assumptions about how to tackle things uh, that, you know, you will understand the strengths and weaknesses of the approach you took better uh, once those plans actually come to pass in the real world. Um, and so like there, there are, there are things we would have done differently. I believe if we just like took ourselves from this moment in a time machine and went back in time, uh, you know, to, to take lessons we've learned now and reapply them in the past. On the other hand, I don't know that that's a fair standard to hold oneself to. Um, because I don't think we made really that I can think of any like large noteworthy mistakes or unforced errors that we should have foresaw. Um, so like, like for example, um, the new design system for the food logger, for the dashboard revamp, uh, and for the, the forthcoming, um, like food log and, and day in review and food detail view pages. Um, you know, if, if we would have had all of the user feedback a year ago that we have today, we would have made different choices and just launched with the current design system. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it, it's also like, if you go back in time a year ago, there, there's no fucking way we could have known any of that. Um, so yeah, like like honestly, and this may sound intemperate to say, um, I think I think we made the right decisions with the information and knowledge we had at the time of making those decisions. So, uh, and, and like I mentioned to start this podcast, like things have gone peculiarly smoothly. Um, so yeah, I I don't know that I that I would have changed anything honestly. For a minute, you sounded like that that documentary, The Fog of War, when it was like, listen, we, we made the best decisions we could make with the information that we had, okay? That's what you sounded like. Is that like a Iraq War documentary? I think it was uh, McNamara. McNamara, okay. Yeah. Okay. But uh, anyway, just uh, an aside there. No, I, I the way I like to view this kind of thing is, I mean, like you said, we, we've had this super active development roadmap where we are constantly making updates and changes and improvements and so of course you can't look back and say oh day one that's exactly how it was supposed to be we would never change a thing like just the fact that we are so actively continuing to take feedback and incorporate it you know of course yeah like we have learned a lot in the first year and it's all been very productive and constructive uh learning opportunities but i i think the 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 most straightforward way to look at a question like that is like, if you could just hit the reset button and start over, would you take that opportunity and just start fresh completely differently? You know, cause I, I don't like to view like individual decisions in a vacuum. Cause yeah. I, I just don't think that's a realistic way to view them. I mean like a, an alternate question that I've been asked is, is kind of like an icebreaker in like certain events over time is like, if if you could go back and like correct one mistake you've made like what what would it be and like i've certainly fucked up and made plenty of mistakes in my life but it's also like i don't know man shit's going pretty well so yeah. uh 
overall I'm content. And if I would have made some other decision, maybe, you know, fucking butterfly wings and chaos theory and all that shit. Like who, who knows? Like maybe, maybe I would have wound up in a worse place overall. And that's, you know, that, that's kind of how I feel about this question. Like, yeah. you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that 100% of like, I, like if, like I said, if we had a time machine and could go back knowing what we know now, we would have made some different decisions, but also like things are going great and who knows if things would have turned out differently if we took a different approach. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just totally cut you off and I'm, I, I apologize for that. It's okay. It's why we have a rigid hierarchy in terms of hosting and co-hosting, but <laughs> I would, yeah, to, to kind of look at this from a different perspective, I would go back and, and just say like, you know, when, when it comes to regrets, it's like on day one, did we know everything? Of course not, you know, cause that, that's not feasible when you're trying a new thing, starting a new project. Um, but year one in terms of, uh, the work that Lindsay and Corey and Rebecca have done in terms of the way the app has changed over time, in terms of the uh, remarkable support from users. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't change a thing because I've just been, it, it's exceeded my expectations in every single area that I just mentioned. Um, so yeah, I mean, we didn't know everything on day one, but year one has been, you know, I, I just have a lot of gratitude because I think it's gone exceptionally well. And I'm super thankful for that, both for the people within our team and also just the, the users out there, everyone who has been part of this process, uh, everyone who has contributed to the macro factor communities, provided feedback, supported us by using the app. Uh, yeah, it, it's been a really incredible year. Yeah. Um, big, big change of pace. Levy's Fit asks, uh, anything evidence-based about hair loss, growing hair, preserving hair, etc.? Uh, and I mostly wanted to answer this because I apologize, Levy's Fit, but we are the worst people you could have possibly asked this question to. <laughs> um, I think I speak for both of us when I say we are both not only perfectly content with hair loss, but at least for me, I actively embrace it and look forward to it i like to have the most minimal personal care and grooming uh system possible like if if you go back and look at uh like the podcast archive you'll notice i average about three haircuts per year um which is just because like i don't want to deal with my hair and i don't mind how it looks when it when it's short i don't mind how it looks when it gets longer once it starts like getting in my eyes or like on my neck, I'm like, okay, this is fucking annoying. Let's just cut it all off. Um, so man, if I like what, if, if, if I could wake up tomorrow and just not have a single hair left on the top of my head and never have to think about it again, that would be perfect for me. So, um, anyway, I've not looked into research on, uh, regrowing or preserving hair because that is, uh, actively counter to my interests. Yeah, I have taken a look at the men in my family, uh, and it's not looking promising in terms of uh, uh, hair prospects for the future for me. Uh, I have also been looking at my own scalp 
and that also <laughs> presents some uh, some unfavorable feedback visually. So yeah, I I have resigned myself to being a person um, who has what is unfortunately a you know yeah it, it's it only affects you know a, a small percentage of men between a third and a half I think um, but but I do believe that I am deep in the throes of androgenic alopecia and uh as you said greg i don't think we're the right people to ask for that because uh you're probably going to lose your hair right i hope so <laughs> yeah i definitely am and i'm just along for the ride i i'm i'm not as excited about it as you but i i i'm very neutral toward it like i shave my head anyway so i'm like whatever i'll i'll shave it yeah. shorter um but yeah i haven't looked into any of it and uh you know i i, t I totally understand people who have an interest in delaying or reversing hair loss. I, I totally understand that perspective. Uh, and for those individuals, I hope that they are able to find effective strategies for what they're looking for. But for me, I'm not not super concerned about it. And so I haven't looked into it because you only have so many hours in a day. That makes sense. Um, yeah, th this, I don't know how evidence-based this is, but I, I will say like, I, I overstated myself slightly before. I have looked into this a little bit and the like the medication you would take for preserving hair, uh like like uh what's it called? Finasteride or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The five alpha re reductase inhibitors. Um those I don't know the extent to which this is causal, but there's at least some um, like cross-sectional research, I believe, linking them to potentially increased rates of cognitive decline, which uh, concerns me more than losing my hair does. Uh, the things that there seem to be at least like a little tiny bit of research on um, that mm, that probably come without many, if any, side effects are apparently. Uh, peppermint extract and menthol uh, stimulate hair follicles to uh, to regrow hair. Um, and I mean, I guess they'd make your head smell good. So you could you could potentially look into that. But that that's not a topic I've done uh, a bunch of deep research on. Yeah. Um, there's a, a question I'd like to very briefly address here. Someone was asking about uh, for like long term muscle gain. Uh, whether uh, a preferred approach is to do kind of repeated sequences of, you know, relatively aggressive bulking and cutting phases versus just kind of settling in for a nice, slow, steady, long-term bulking phase. Um, that's something that I've actually gotten a few questions about over the last few weeks. So it's kind of top of mind. Uh, my personal preference, if you, if there's no rush by which you need to like very promptly gain muscle or very promptly get lean for a particular purpose, like a, a competition, an event, whatever the case is. My general approach, my general preference is to do a nice, long, slow, steady bulking phase. The reason I prefer that is because I like to try to match my rate of weight gain in a bulk to a realistic rate of muscle gain. And as a person who is not using exogenous anabolics, that rate of muscle gain is not super, you know, especially at my phase of someone who's been lifting for a long time, I'm not going to gain like 35 pounds of muscle 
in the blink of an eye. Not with that attitude. Yeah, look at me. So uh, health psychology research, right? I'm failing. Uh, but, you know, realistically, I, I, I try to look at it and say, okay, what, what is the, a realistic amount of muscle I can gain over the next year? And I try to tailor my, my rate of weight gain to that. And usually a bulking phase for me at the absolute bare minimum is going to be six months, usually going to be closer to a year. Um, just so I can do it slow and steady because the benefit there is you're not uh, necessarily inviting uh, a high degree of unwanted fat gain in the process. Um, and, you know, if you're comfortable with with uh, an appreciable amount of fat gain, then by all means, you can accelerate the process for sure. But, you know, I, I see a lot of folks who say, well, you have to do bulk and cutting cycles because, you know, a, a lot of times people say, slow bulks are so hard to track over time like the the surplus is so small and the rate of weight gain is so slow you know it's very difficult to logistically track that so you have to do this rapid weight gain and rapid weight cut and rapid weight gain and rapid weight cut and with the type of technologies that are available for monitoring things over time i no longer find that to be a compelling argument to to be totally honest i think with you know, even if you're not using macro factor with very straightforward uh, efforts toward tracking your body weight over time, smoothing out the noise in the data with very basic soft, you know, Google Sheet, Excel, I think it's more feasible than people suggest to track a nice slow bulk over time. And so I think the, the, that argument that you need to therefore do really rapid weight gain and really rapid weight cuts, I I, I don't personally uh, subscribe to that perspective. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, I mean, you would know this better than me, but doesn't the evidence at least seem to suggest that if a large surplus is more efficacious than a small surplus for building muscle, the, the net difference is probably pretty small? Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of good evidence about, you know, what an ideal surplus would be. All we can really do is, I mean, it's very clear that if you overshoot it, uh, precipitous fat gain is sure to follow uh, unless you have, unless you're uh, of a particular metabolic phenotype such that, you know, you, you know, really aggressively increase your non-exercise activity level uh, or thermogenesis. Uh, so some people do have some kind of resistance to fat gain that appears to be innate, um, and they have a little more wiggle room or more cushion there. But mm -hmm. we really don't know the optimal uh, size of a surplus for weight gain. But what we can do is say, okay, well, what's the energy cost of all the processes going into this? Um, and based on those energy costs, it looks like you probably don't need a particularly large caloric surplus to maximize or nearly maximize the benefits of of being in a surplus yeah. for for hypertrophy. Makes sense to me. All right, uh, let's see. So Adam Conrad has a question about uh, like adding RDAs for for micronutrients into the app. Um, Adam, once uh, once this is done, go back and listen to the start of this live Q and A. I addressed a question related to that. But uh, in short, that is uh, that is definitely in the plans for this upcoming year. Um, Brooks Swinnerton uh, asks, what sort of recovery window should you aim for between workout days for maximum hypertrophy? And my answer to that is that it is very, very contingent on what the details of those workouts look like. And you can make 
a lot of recovery windows work for you, uh, depending on what your training looks like. So uh, if you want to go for a higher frequency approach where you're training uh, a particular muscle group with maybe only 48 hours between sessions, like, you know, if you wanted to hit back Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, um, generally that's going to necessitate lower uh, per session volumes. And at least for one or two of those sessions, you can still stimulate the muscles, but you probably want to not push them quite as hard so there's adequate time to recover. So, you know, probably not training to failure in all of those sessions. And, you know, like you're, um, you, you have to kind of go into the gym with a well-defined plan and a bit of a limiter. So if you're the type of person who, your approach to hypertrophy training is say like, hey, these are the muscle groups I'm training in this workout, and I'm just going to fucking clobber them in this session. Uh, you probably won't be able to get away with uh, 24, 48 hours between sessions of training that muscle group. Uh, that would probably be more amenable to a training frequency of once or twice per week with maybe up to a week of recovery between workouts for a particular muscle or at least 72 to 96 hours. Um, so yeah, like if, if the details of your training program are amenable to a higher training frequency, so a little bit lower volumes per workout for the muscles you're training, not going to failure quite as frequently, you could train a muscle group three, four times per week with just 48 hours between sessions on average, or if you want to be quite conservative with per session training volume, you could theoretically train the same muscle every day, although uh, the marginal benefits of doing so are are probably smaller non-existent. So not saying you should do that, just that that you could set up your training such that you could. Um, but yeah, like if if you're if you're the type of person who who just really wants to hammer the muscles you're training for a particular workout, then you're looking at training frequencies of like once or twice per per muscle group per week, which kind of lends itself just naturally to uh, rest periods between training that, that muscle of at least 72 hours. Good stuff. All right. I wanted to answer a quick question here from Matt B. Question okay. was, is the new podcast episode this month, this Monday or the following Monday? The answer is the following Monday. So today is Friday the 16th which means Monday is what? The 19th? Is that right? Friday, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th? That seems very plausible. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's the 19th. So what's the one after that? Uh, the one after 26th? that is the 26th. So yeah, yeah the, the, the next full podcast episode is going to be released on the 26th, but this upcoming week on Wednesday and on Friday, we are, I think, putting videos on the YouTube channel. So like little... Uh, segments from that that upcoming episode. I believe that's what we're going to accomplish. Uh, cool. So, yeah. Um, let's see. Any other good ones to get to here? Uh, I thought I saw one, but they always just sneak away when I go back and look for them. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, I... I'm going to answer this question by JFB, who I think has asked this at least twice in the chat. Seems insistent, so uh, probably definitely worth getting to. 
How does macro factor account for scale weight increases from the amount of food you're eating in the beginning of a gain phase? So um, I'm going to put a link in the chat from uh, the macro factor knowledge base that should that should help clarify this. Uh, but essentially, the the weight trending approach we use is uh, is back looking and also doesn't doesn't price in uh, gains in weight like automatically. Essentially, so you know if you um, if you were say at maintenance previously and you weighed uh, one sixty five or something like that. And you decide, hey, I'm going to shift into a surplus. I'm going to start eating more. And maybe your scale weight jumps up four or five pounds from the start of the week to the end of the week, just because there's more, you know, food contents in your stomach, uh, glycogen levels are higher, more fluid retention, uh, etc. Basically, macro factor won't look at that and be like, ooh, shit, this person gained five pounds this week. They're in a surplus of like 2,500 calories per day. Let's let's slash the calories. The approach we use, essentially, if you do have notable fluctuations in weight that are sustained, those increases are priced in gradually. And so the full effect of that five pounds that you gained in the span of a week so, like, since you're not actually in a surplus resulting in five pounds of weight gain per week every week, um, essentially, like, you know, it it will jump initially and then start gradually trending up from there. And that initial increase you saw will be gradually priced in over about three weeks, give or take, um, which is uh, far more appropriate. So you don't get, like, herky-jerky, you know, multi-hundred calorie increases in your targets week to week as you're adjusting to a new diet phase. Um, But yeah, like, I feel like that's about all I can say without just like fully divulging how we do it. But the, um, the, the link from the macro factor knowledge base should uh, like, especially the, the images in it should help uh, explain what's going on and how, how we do kind of like gradually ease you into those phases and uh, account for like rapid but sustained fluctuations. Good stuff. I've got one I want to answer here from Heather P. Very quick one. Uh, Why do I see some fitness and bodybuilding competitors cut dairy for fat loss? Is there any research to support this or is it bro science? Um, So basically uh, this is a thing that became popular in the bodybuilding world, I would file it under either bro science or just kind of a misinterpretation of what's going on. So I I think some people got into that uh, mindset that you cut dairy simply because there are other protein sources that offer uh, fewer calories per gram of protein. I, I think that's a popular thing in the bodybuilding world is immediately when you switch over to a cut, especially like the old school bodybuilding world. It's like, what are the leanest protein sources possible? So minimal fat content, minimal carb content. And even if you go for lower fat dairy, there's still usually, uh, depending on the the exact food, there's usually some carbohydrate content that comes with it. So um, back back in the day, the bodybuilders, it was like protein was just coming from whay isolate and, you know, skinless chicken breast and like, 
the leanest fish you could imagine. You know, that was kind of the old school way of doing it. So part of it might just be a simplified way of reducing calories without actually putting that name to it. Other folks, I do suspect, uh, might have minor intolerances to dairy and just have some bloating that occurs when they consume dairy. And so I think folks might have noticed that when they cut dairy, that bloating goes away uh, acutely and they say, oh, wow, I look you know, leaner and I feel better, et cetera. So this is how I'm going to cut from now on. So I think it's largely an issue of just misattributing what, it, what role dairy is really having in terms of acutely inducing some bloating in susceptible individuals, not in everybody. And then also just kind of the extra calories that come with dairy sources of protein. So there's absolutely no research to indicate that you need to cut dairy for fat loss. It absolutely can stay in there and support uh, very, very effective fat loss uh, progress as you go. Um, there was one other one here. Oh, can we do one about deloads? Sure. So uh, someone asked a quick, there were actually a couple different questions about deloads, which is why I wanted to address it. Uh, Leslie Wong asked the most open-ended version, which is, how do you guys like to approach deloads? Um and so th there are a couple ways that I like to do it. Um, I've experimented with a few different ways over the years. Uh, back in the day, I would keep my volume relatively similar, but just drop my loads to like half or like 60% of what I used to do. Uh, that was fine, but I felt it was tedious and annoying. I didn't really enjoy it because I was like, I'm in the gym just as long I'm just not enjoying it, having fun. So then I started saying, well, whatever, I'm going to keep the intensity a little bit higher than that, but really dramatically cut the volume. And I would cut the volume down to like, you know, way less than half, you know, maybe, maybe even a third or a quarter of what I usually do. So I'd go in and it's not like I'm doing like super heavy stuff, but heavy enough to keep it interesting, but just slashing my volume really precipitously. And in many cases, combining my workouts. So instead of going to the gym five days that week, I only have to drive over three days a week or something like that. Nowadays, um, I honestly have a tendency to just let life handle deloads for me. And what I mean by that is I, I don't, I know that some people are going to uh, criticize me mercilessly for this. I don't really like to train when I travel. Unless I'm traveling for like a fitness conference and it's like an event for everyone to train together, you know, if, if I'm going on a, a vacation and it's like, oh, I want to go like ski, I don't want to say, well, we got to find a mountain near a gym or, you know, drive through 20 minutes of mountains to go find a gym because I got to go do a workout. I prefer to just let my deloads fall when I simply cannot get to the gym or don't want to get to the gym for a week. And I'll generally just take a week off, or if I feel really compelled to, I might do some really light stuff, push-ups, bands, little, you know, pistol squats, stuff I can do with body weight or minimal equipment. But over the years, as my goals have changed and my just general intensity level toward training has changed, uh, I've taken a much more laid back approach and just said like, you know, when, when a good time to take a deload is, is like when I have a vacation or if I'm sick. And I found that the more that I train for like physique focus purposes, you know, it's if you're training for like a powerlifting competition, you might have to get you you might feel compelled to get a little bit more serious with how you arrange a deload. But if you're just like generally training to be overall 
healthy fit and have like, you know, a physique that suits your goals. In that case, like you probably don't need more than maybe a few deloads a year and you might get sick once or twice. You might be out of town once or twice. And so for me, deloads have just become something that occurs rather than something I have to proactively implement. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's uh, that's exactly where I'm at as well. Um, yeah, e- either for like instances where going to the gym would just be very inconvenient, like if we're traveling, if we're seeing family, whatever. Um, or just like, uh, I mean, you know this about me. During my most busy writing week for Mass every month, I just don't go to the gym because I'm I'm working from when I wake up to when I go to sleep, and uh, going to the gym would just mean less sleep, and uh, my sleep is precious during those times. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my my life just carves out a week every month to deload, regardless. Um. So yeah, that's that's how I approach it these days. Historically, I gotta say I've I've never really been one for deloads. Um. I always at least thought that it was something that I should do, but it was also the type of thing where I I would just sort of like on a workout to workout basis let how I was feeling and how I was performing dictate how I would train. So essentially like if if I was in need of a deload, uh which you know I, I would figure out after the fact. I would go into the gym still planning on lifting heavy and and getting my volume in and whatnot. And then I'd start warming up. I'd start putting weight on the bar. And like the weights just wouldn't be moving the way they were supposed to. And I got pretty good at just realizing like, nope, today's not my day. Um, and so not pushing the heavy stuff quite as heavy as I typically would. Um try a back offset and like sometimes top end strength wouldn't be there but like volume work still felt great still performed well um and so that would just you know it would just be like still a hard training session but i just changed the focus of it like yeah i don't have the top end stuff in me today but like i can still get a good workout in higher volume stuff and that still feels good if i do my first drop back set and it also just didn't feel good i'd say well well not today. Uh, and you know, I might do a couple accessory sets of something and then just leave. Yeah. And, uh, if I pushed myself too hard over like a period of weeks, I might have like four training sessions in a row that went like that. And then what do you know? Now I just had four pretty easy training sessions back to back. And then, uh, after that, guess what? I feel strong again and, uh, just go back to normal. So, yeah. um, yeah, from, taking like a fairly like intuitively auto-regulated approach to training um deloads just kind of like naturally happened when i needed them but they they weren't something that i really planned ahead of time or really had uh, a plan for how i would address them like yeah basically for for the better part of a decade if i was feeling strong i'd lift heavy if i wasn't feeling strong but you know, the reps were still there, felt productive. Then I'd still train hard, but just lighter. Um, and if that didn't feel good too, eh, it's an easy day and just roll with the punches. Yeah. You know, I didn't really think about it that way, but that is something that I've always done. Um, 
And so I, I think that that probably is why I haven't felt the need to specifically carve out a lot of time for deloads is because, yeah, I do the same form of like, if it's not there, I don't force it. And so I think that that largely alleviates the need for very formal week-long deloads. If if you're like, yeah, I kind of just phoned it in for the last few workouts and just kind of kept it easy, it, it's essentially a, a small deload. Yeah. Uh, one other follow-up question people had. Do, do you, I don't change my calorie intake during a deload, do you? No. Yeah, I, I like to just keep things simple. Yeah. You uh, see uh, Pac oh, is in the, uh, in the comments there. Yo, what's up? Uh, no pack, uh, hypertrophy is not a supplement that we sell. Not yet. Uh, not yet. Um, let's see. Let's. Someone asked about, um, so basically due to some stress and time management challenges, they couldn't sleep well. They asked, what's the minimum sleep that we think they should get uh, to uh, to make sure they're recovering from training? My personal answer is I think there's uh, somewhat considerable variability in terms of how much sleep each individual person needs. Um, and I think a good way to find that out is by assessing exactly how much you feel like shit with a given amount of sleep. Um, you know, so like... Me and my girlfriend require very different amounts of sleep. I require less. Um, I don't frame that as like a virtue. <laughs> like sometimes people are like, oh, sleeping a lot is is not good. But like then other times people act like sleeping too little is uh like you're you're shortchanging yourself and cutting corners. Like I, I think a good way to determine how much sleep you need is to be try to be as objective and possible and be honest with, with yourself and figure out like how how much sleep do you need to really feel like you're at your best, not just physically, but also cognitively? Um, for me, it's seven hours. Uh, if I increase from seven to eight, I don't really notice too much from that. If I drop from seven to six, I feel it in a big way. I, I am useless if I get only six hours of sleep for a, a continuous period of time. Yeah, I so the the thing about poor sleep is the effects are cumulative. Um I, I do think people have a tendency to overly catastrophize one night of either short sleep or poor poor quality sleep. Um and as far as far as like training performance goes, like one night of poor sleep doesn't really seem to do much, if anything. Um but then, like, a week of consistently poor or shortened sleep uh, certainly can add up and, and have deleterious effects. So, yeah, I, I think that a lot of it is just kind of a, a matter, like you said, of just assessing on a personal level where you feel fine and where you perform well. Um, but, yeah. Also, one thing I should add is that um, there are sleep it's very tempting to reduce it down to a single integer you know five hours six hours seven hours eight hours there's a lot more that goes into it in terms of waking up feeling well rested you know yeah. so i think that in the quest to identify effective sleep quantity don't lose sight of sleep quality as well uh, yeah. which can be harder to keep an eye on but 
you know, you, you can have two different nights of sleep or you sleep seven hours and wake up feeling dramatically different uh, those two nights. Um, and I, I think a lot of basic sleep hygiene practices go a long way in trying to make sure that the hours you get are truly high quality hours of sleep. I agree. Uh, do you want to do you want to look at wrapping it up soon? Yeah, I, I think probably probably one more and we should be good to go. Right. Cool. Yeah, we're we're pushing two hours and just. In terms of vibes in the room, I feel like both of us are losing steam a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, were, were were there any like particularly good ones that you would like to end on? Um, you know, I got to be honest, I I covered most of the big ones that I wanted to get to. I'm struggling to think of another one here. Were there any that you had in mind? Hey, pe- people watching right now, if there's a burning question currently on your mind, Drop it in the chat. We'll bullshit for like two or three minutes. And whatever the best question is that comes in uh, very soon is is the one we'll end on. Well, I can bullshit about the fact I feel personally attacked by the sleep questions because, you know, I was in a very grave state a couple days ago. Yes. Uh, I pulled approximately an all-nighter doing work stuff and just felt like absolute garbage. But today... I think I am finally caught up on sleep and out of that cumulative sleep debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and today I almost felt like, I almost felt like euphoric. You know what I mean? When you finally get caught up and you're like, oh, this is what it feels like mm-hmm. to not be a zombie. So um, very happy to be back in the sleeping part of the the human community. Glad to hear it, man. Uh, oh, here... Here's a fun a fun one to end on by Fitness, who uh, has been asking a, a lot of questions. I've been watching the chat, and I don't think we've answered any from from them yet. Uh, but they ask, "Can you both share? Can both of you guys share a recipe?" Which seems fun to me. What What have you been cooking recently, Eric? God, uh, this is. You want to know what I had today? What did you have today? Um, I had my pea-based protein shake. Mm-hmm. That was one of my meals. And the other meal, I made white rice and I put chickpeas in it and a little bit of soy sauce and a little bit of teriyaki sauce. It sounds good. And that that is probably 85% of my diet over the course of the week. Nice. Yeah. So uh, there's your recipe. Make sure you, you tag me if you use it because that's, yeah. that's intellectual property. So I'll I'll give two. Uh, one, one, I guess is more of like a concept, but it's what, it's what I'm currently doing for meal prep. And I got to say it's great. And the other one is more for you than the chat, but it's, it's a look ahead to an experiment that I'm going to be trying tomorrow for, oh, for tomorrow. Yes. Good. So, uh, first meal prep related thing. So, uh, I, previously experimented with using noodles as like my primary carb source for meal prep instead of rice or something similar. And the issue I ran into is that like you can't, you can't really prep ahead noodles without them just getting like too, too soggy over time. Uh, at least like to an extent that I don't like. And, um, 
I found that for whatever reason, uh, and and so like the reason I wanted to go with noodles is, as you mentioned before, even omnivores get a fair bit of protein from from non-animal sources. Uh, and you also had a mass article a while back about how, um, you know, like minus the lysine deficiency, uh, like wheat protein, like gluten is actually like a, a surprisingly high quality protein source. I mean, not not necessarily based on like the like quantitative metrics of yeah. like the scales that are popularized, but like in terms of actual effects, it does quite well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, one of the cool things about about noodles is like previously my my go to carb source was rice. I would just cook a, a shit ton of basmati rice, and that would be most of my carbs for the week. Uh, but like noodles have about twice as much protein per unit of like calories or carbs compared to rice. So I was like, Hey, this would be a very convenient way to keep my protein high without having to consume quite as much like meat or dairy or whatever else. Uh, you know, it it just gives me more flexibility with what I want to do. They probably keep better as well. Right. For like over the course of the week. You know, they say that cooking rice ahead is dangerous from like a food safety perspective. I what? don't. Yeah, appara- apparently, uh, if you cook rice and like leave it in the fridge, it can like get infected with shit. What, dude? I, that's like most of my diet. That is that also like for most of my life has been a a good chunk of my diet. Oh as my well. god. Anyway, the. the I don't accept any liability for what I'm about to say. I think that's fake news. Um, yeah, I I don't know that I believe that. Uh, I've I've never gotten poisoned from it. Anyway, uh, but so okay. Wanted to get back to noodles. Higher total protein content gives me more flexibility. I found that. Um, oh God, it just left me. What are the little noodles that basically look like rice? Oh, I, I mean, I have no idea. Uh, I'm I'm going to get it. Orzo. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I found for whatever reason that like long noodles that get overly mushy, not good. Um, like macaroni style noodles, also not good. Uh, but like orzo, I find that if it's in the fridge in some sort of like uh, broader meal prep and it gets soggy, like I just don't mind. It's fine. Um and so I've I've gone back to that and I've been I've been getting into the realm of of cheese sauces for things because uh, also like low moisture part skim like mozzarella also has like pretty decent macros. Um, and so my previous meal prep was absolutely incredible. So it was three pounds of orzo, about six pounds of chicken thighs uh 24 ounces of um, uh, tomato paste, an enormous amount of onions, an enormous amount of garlic. And uh, so like I started the chicken in a pan, uh, like I I ground it, started it in a pan, let some of the fat render out, put in like six pounds of onions, let them sweat all the way down, threw some garlic in, then hit it with uh, the, the tomato paste, a lot of salt, a lot of MSG, like let that cook until the tomato paste started caramelizing, picking up a little bit of color, uh, kind of the the raw taste uh, or like raw smell uh, getting away from it. 
and then uh, just adding water until it was a little bit thinner than I wanted. And then I had uh, two pounds of low moisture part skim mozzarella that I shredded. And then once that whole mixture came up to a simmer, uh, just you know turn turn off the heat so that the cheese doesn't like overcook and start separating out. Put all of the cheese in there, mix it until it's fully combined. And at that point, you basically just have like a, a very protein rich like cheese sauce, which is fucking incredible. And then I boiled the orzo, uh, stirred it in, and I gotta say, it was not not just like adequate meal prep for the macros I'm aiming for, but it was like legitimately fucking good. Nice. Like it was um it, it wasn't like sort of like the best vodka sauce that one could get from an Italian restaurant, but it was like if you just got noodles and like store-bought vodka sauce and chicken, it was it was like that that level of like hedonically pleasing. Uh, it was really great. But anyway, um, little tip, uh, orzo for meal prep. It's nice. I'd recommend it. It's good. Nice. Um, in terms of the experiment that we're going for for tomorrow, so I'm making burgers. Uh, you and I are vegetarian, not using beef. And so for y'all's burgers, what I'm going to do is I got... Uh, just a slew of mushrooms. So some shiitakes, some oyster mushrooms, some maitakes. I'm going to cut them up pretty small, but not really small. Uh, and and basically just cook them down, uh, render most of the water out, let them caramelize a little bit. And then, uh, so I, I'm doing that tonight, so they'll have time to cool. And then for the burgers themselves... I'm going to toss in uh, some some dashi, a little bit of soy sauce, some liquid smoke maybe, um, and an egg, and then just like however much, either flour or breadcrumbs. I'm not totally sure yet which way I want to go, but just enough to, to hold it together. Also plenty of salt and MSG, so it's like very, very savory. Um, and just add as much flour as is needed to... Like, make it adhere to, to be, like, a loose patty without being, like, super, super dry. Um, and then, yeah, just just sear it up good. Um, and I gotta say, I've... I mean, I've eaten far too many burgers in my life. Uh, the, the the beef burgers I'm gonna make are, are gonna be incredible, but also not exciting to me. Just because I've, I'm very good at burgers and I've had so many of them. But I'm like straight up very excited for the mushroom burgers I'm gonna make. Yeah. Um, I I think that I will actually prefer them to the beef ones. Wow. But they're 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 gonna be something. Are you grinding up the meat for the beef burgers yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Because back in the day, you'd do all sorts of elaborate blends of meats and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going. Uh, just going. You remember when you first got the the meat grinder? You had burgers every meal for like three weeks. <laughs> it was like eight months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm just I'm just going short rib. Cool, but yeah, yeah. should be nice. Well, I'm excited, man. I, I appreciate all the the thought and effort going into the vegetarian accommodation there. No problem. And I'm very excited to to taste that. It sounds like it's going to be awesome. Sweet. All right, uh, wrap this up. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so once again, uh, everyone, thank you so much for joining us live on a Friday night, starting your weekend. 
you know, joining us for this one-year anniversary celebration of Macro Factor. Uh, and thanks to everyone for your support over the last year. Um, as Greg and I have said multiple times, year one of this big experiment with Macro Factor has totally exceeded our expectations. The uh, the support from all of you has been absolutely phenomenal. We couldn't possibly be more grateful or appreciative for that support. So thank you so much for that over the last year. Thanks for joining us tonight. And hopefully we'll see you in exactly one year for the second anniversary. Also, before we wrap up, I just want to make sure that everyone behind the scenes also gets the credit they deserve. Uh, Eric and I are the people in front of the camera, uh, but... I mean, we absolutely couldn't have done this without the developers, Corey and Rebecca. It it cannot be overstated how fucking good they are and how hard they've been working this entire year. Um, like the just straight up without them, the app doesn't exist. Um, also, not trying to score brownie points, but uh, also couldn't have done this without Lindsay, my wife. She is the silent fifth member of the team who uh, actually just created a Reddit account today to uh, to post the annual report in the subreddit. Um, but yeah, she's, she's not uh, around publicly in the groups, but she does a tremendous amount behind the scenes as far as design goes, marketing, uh, managing the email list, making sure that when Eric and I write articles that are entirely too long, that they are appropriately edited and uh, the images look good and... Yeah, I mean, she she rocks. Also, like, none of this would be happening without her. And uh, finally, last but absolutely not least, uh, Adam Fisher, who handles the vast, vast majority of the support for Macro Factor. So if you've ever, um, if you've ever, like, submitted a support ticket and someone got back with you, there's, like, a 99.8% chance that was Adam. Uh he is incredible, and also the app would not be in the state it is today without him. If he wasn't doing that, then the support burden would mostly then fall on Corey and Rebecca, which would mean they would have less time to actually work on the app and create features. So once again, his uh, his contribution to Macro Factor has been enormous and, and can't be overstated. So, um, and of course... Uh, like you said, all of the users, um, you know, just purely in terms of this being a business, we wouldn't have a, a business that could continue into the future without people using the app. And then also just in terms of how good the app is and the state it's in today without all of the feedback and feature requests, voting on our public roadmap, all of that that, that you guys have done, uh, the app wouldn't be as good as it is and in the state it's in today. So uh, deep, deep appreciation for, for all of you. Absolutely. Once again, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Have a great morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you happen to be in the world. And we will be back hopefully in one year for the second anniversary celebration. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.